That's the title of my message. Cosmic Christmas Part 2. Here's the title. It's personal. Somebody say, it's personal. Do you understand that your relationship with God is about your relationship with God? It's personal. And that's what John has come to tell us. He walked with Jesus for three years. He saw Jesus arrested, crucified, buried, and rose to life again. And then he saw Jesus ascend to the right-hand side of God the Father and go up into heaven. And so this John knows Jesus personally, and he tells us that this cosmic, universal principle who put on flesh, in verse 14, John 1, 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Another translation says he tabernacled among us. Somebody say tabernacled. Now, tabernacle is an interesting word because all the Jews would have been familiar with that word. That comes from the Old Testament, the times of Exodus and Leviticus, when Moses was commanded by God to build a tabernacle where God would dwell in the midst of the 12 tribes of Israel, four tribes on each side of that tabernacle. I'm sorry, three tribes on each side of that tabernacle. And, 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 and the tabernacle was made with common items, poles, and goat skins were on the outside. Anybody ever felt a goat? It's not a very impressive fabric. Have you ever had goat skins? Not very, no, I guarantee nobody here has a goat skin couch. Watch, one of you is gonna come up to me and say, I got a goat skin couch and I love it. All right, well, good for you. But goat skin is a very humble kind of fabric. God wanted the outside of the tabernacle where he dwelt among his people to look humble, to look unimpressive. But you know where they put all the gold? And where, all they, where they put all the fine linen and the fabrics and the purple and the scarlet and all the silk and the bronze and all the, all the expensive items, they put it on the inside of the tabernacle. You know what it's saying? It's a, it's, a, it's a picture of what Jesus is. On the outside, he comes to us humble, meek, and mild. But on the inside, he's filled with the royalty of God, the power of God, the person of God. You come into Jesus, he comes to you lowly, but you come into Jesus and you experience all the goodness of God when you come into the true tabernacle that is Jesus Christ, his son. And John says, and we saw his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And he comes to tell us, John does in this gospel, it's personal. Point number one, if you're taking notes, write this down, all the points are personal. This God is the God who comes to me. He is the God who comes to me. Christianity is different from every other religion on the face of the earth. Because every other religion is you have got to get to God. You gotta climb the ladder. You gotta be better. Pray more, study more, accomplish these feats. You got the five pillars of Islam. You gotta listen to the Thetas or Hinduism. Or you gotta absolve yourself of any kind of desires in Buddhism. It's all about what you do, but Christianity is different. Christianity is not about what you do. Christianity is all about what Jesus did for you. He came and lived for you. He came to get you. He even said one day, he said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. Who's lost? We were lost. And Jesus came to find us. He's the God who comes to us. The God who put on flesh, John 1, 14 again. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. In other words, the eternal one became a temporal person for a moment. The omnipresent one limited himself to one human body. 
The immortal one put on mortality for us. And this faith, this Christian message is the only message that tells the world that the God who created it entered into it and lived with us. Do you know what that means? That means he knows what it feels like to be a human. He knows what it feels like to be hated. He knows what it feels like to be rejected. He knows what it feels like to be abandoned. Most importantly, listen to this. He knows what it feels like to be betrayed by a close friend. He knows what it feels like to be left alone in this darkest hour, sweating drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he did that so that he could sympathize with us so that he could know how it feels and bring us through what we're going through and lead us back to the one who made us so that we can be strong in him and not in ourselves. Hebrews 4.15 says, the high priest of ours understands our, what? Weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. He's the God who comes to me. Number two, he's the God who inspires me. He's the God who inspires me. And what do you mean by that, Pastor? I mean that what, what John says in this gospel, in verse 14 again, he says, we have seen his glory, glory of the only one, the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, when, when we think about glory, we think about people achieving athletic greatness or popularity or fame, and they get the award and they get the trophy, and we think, oh, the glory of that moment. But listen, Jesus doesn't have to chase glory. No, Jesus has glory in him. It's intrinsic to who he is. And he revealed, John said, he said, we saw his glory. Now, how did they see his glory? Well, John tells us in John chapter 2, they saw his glory through the signs that Jesus performed. There's the first sign that Jesus performed. He turned the water into what? Wine. That's the first sign. And in the book of John, a lot of sevens in the book of John, there are seven signs. Seven signs. The first one, water to wine. That Jesus enters into a wedding, they run out of wine halfway through the, the week-long wedding celebration because the Jews really knew how to party, amen. <laughs> and uh, they run out of wine, Jesus says, all right, don't worry about it, just fill the stone jars and, 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 and then and take it to the master of the banquet. And water is turned into wine. And it says this at the end of that moment in John 2, 11, this is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested his glory, showed his glory. And when they saw his glory, his disciples believed in him. Now, there are seven signs in John. The first, water to wine. And I want to tell you that every sign points to what Jesus came to do for you. Water to wine. That is talking about the fact that Jesus came to transform you. Transform your properties. Take you from old nasty water and turn you into wine, a symbol of joy, a symbol of happiness, a symbol of freedom and liberality. And that's what God wants for your life. Not old ritual, not going through the motions, not just living life day by day, trying to get through another year. No, God wants you to have the joy that is his because the scripture says the joy of the Lord is our strength. 
And when Christians come into worship experiences and they lift their hands and they sing the songs and they are happy to be in each other's presence, it's the sign that something has transformed in their life, not from the outside, but from the inside. They've got everlasting joy in the Holy Spirit through the God who changed them. Sign number two is in John chapter 4, when an official comes to Jesus and he asks him to heal his servant at home. And Jesus says, just go home, your servant is well. He doesn't even have to show up at the door. Jesus just says the word and heals the man's servant. The man goes home and the servant was healed at that very hour. Second sign. What is that sign talking about? It's talking about this, that Jesus' words are all you need. You don't even need the physical presence of Jesus. You just need his word. Sometimes his word is what I need in a moment of confusion and frustration. Sometimes he comes through at just the right moment in my life when I don't know what to do. And he tells me what to do and how to live. And it changes the atmosphere of my life. He changes my life through his word. Amen. Sign number three is in John chapter 5. When Jesus is walking through the the, 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 uh, the temple and he sees a man sitting by a pool and he's lame and he's been lame for 38 years and he's waiting for an angel because there was a myth about the pool that an angel would stir the waters and, and the first one in the pool after the waters were stirred would get healed. Jesus comes to him and says, do you want to get well? And the first thing out of his mouth is, well, I have no one to help me get in the pool when the water's stirred. Jesus says, you don't need anybody. Pick up your mat and go home. Immediately he was healed. He gets up, picks up his mat, and goes home. What's the sign pointing to? The sign is pointing to this, that no human being can do for you what Jesus Christ can do for you. You don't need another man. You don't need another woman. You don't need another spouse. You don't need another child. You don't need another job. You need Jesus Christ. Because Paul the apostle could write from prison, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. If you got him, you don't need anyone else. Sign number, that was sign number three. Sign number four, feeding of the 5,000. What's that pointing to? That Jesus fills us and never lets us hunger ever again. Sign number four. Sign number five, the man born blind in John chapter 9. And the Bible says that when the disciples see the man born blind, they say, Jesus, who sinned that this man was born blind? In other words, who can we blame for his condition? And Jesus says, neither he nor his parents. He was born blind that the works of God might be made manifest in him. And then he opens the blind man's eyes. The sign is pointing to the fact that what Jesus does for you is he opens your eyes to see God the way God really is. He gives you spiritual vision. He gives you physical vision. He helps you see life the way you need to see it. He helps you see your future the way you need to see it. He helps you see your past the way you need to see it. And what he sees from past, present, and future over your life is grace from God to make you into a new person. Sign number six is the raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11. And that story is powerful because Jesus comes to the grave after Lazarus has been dead four days. And the Bible says that when John, Jesus sees Mary and Martha crying, he cried. Jesus knew he was going to raise them, but he wept because he knows how it feels to be human. And then he says, now you're going to see the glory of God. I'm the resurrection and the life. 
And he spoke to that dead man in that tomb and said, come out of that tomb. And Lazarus took off his grave clothes and walked out of the tomb and came to new life. And the point of the story is Lazarus was Jesus' friend. And so what that sign is pointing to is this, that everybody who's a friend of Jesus, maybe we die, but even if we die, yet shall we live. COVID might kill you, but Jesus can raise you. It doesn't matter what gets the best of you this life. Jesus has got you for the next life. And I'm not afraid because I know who holds me in the palm of his hand. And he's got power over death. Sign number seven, that's Jesus' own resurrection. And at the resurrection of Jesus, every power of hell was broken. Every power of the devil was broken. All the power of sin was broken. And you, through Jesus, can walk out of sin, out of shame, out of guilt, out of fear, and into new life through the powerful working of Jesus Christ's resurrection inside of you. He's the God who changes you and transforms you. John chapter 20, verse 30, he says, these signs, these signs are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might have life in his name. That's his glory. Point number three, if you're taking notes, he's the God who saves me from dead religion and deadly rebellion. Now, dead religion and deadly rebellion, two killers of the human soul. Dead religion, what's that, pastor? Well, that's the... Um, more subtle way people miss Jesus. The more subtle way. You know, there's two ways that you can miss Jesus. Two ways that you can avoid the life that Jesus wants to give you. The first way is the obvious way. That's the old rebellion route. A lot of you have gone that route. A lot of you lived a lot of years through that route. A lot of you spent a good portion of your 20s and 30s in that route. Amen, somebody. That's just old rebellion. I'm going to do life my way. I'm not going to listen to anybody. I'm going to make my own choices. And you did it, and you went, and you got the scars maybe on your body, but definitely on your soul to prove it. That ultimately rebellion leads to death. But there's a second more subtle way to miss Jesus. Here's the one. Dead religion. Dead religion. Dead religion is the people who think that they're good enough for God. The people who think they're good people. I always say it's America's favorite religion. America's favorite religion is I'm a good personism. I'm going to heaven. Really? Why? Because I'm a good person. Oh, yeah? Based on whose scale? My own. Well, isn't that convenient? Like uh, when you went to college, did the professor let you grade your papers too? No, no, no. There, there's a, something prideful about the human heart that believes that we can make the scale our own way and then we can pass the test our own way. Here's what the Bible says. There's none good. There's none who does what is right. All have fallen short of God's glory. But through Jesus Christ, every single sinner, every single person, no matter how bad they've been, can come to God through Jesus Christ. He said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And what Jesus came to do is save you from dead religion and dead rebellion and give you a brand new life in his light. John says it like this in verse 14. We saw his glory. Glory is of the only one from the Father. Full of what? Full of grace and what? Truth. Grace and truth. Grace to save the rebellious truth to save the self-righteous. There's a moment in the Bible when the self-righteous good people bring a woman caught in the act of adultery to Jesus' feet. Drag the poor girl in the middle of the town square, throw her down in front of Jesus, and they say, Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. 
By the way, anybody know that you don't commit adultery alone? Where was the dude? But this was a setup. And I think that the dude was in on it. So they throw her down to shame her and guilt her and condemn her. And they say to Jesus, what do you say? Moses says stoner. What do you say? And they were trying to trap him because if he says stoner, then he's breaking the law of Rome, which, pro which prohibited the Jews from executing capital punishment. So he'd be in trouble with the Roman authorities. If he says let her go, he'd be breaking the law of Moses because the law of Moses did in fact say you stone the adulterer. So Jesus sees through their duplicity and he says, let he who is without sin throw the first stone. And you know what John records? John records it. He says, one by one, they all began to drop their stones and walk away. And then a little qualifier. He says, beginning with the oldest. Beginning with the oldest. Why, begin, why would the older guys go first? And you know, you got to live a little longer to understand that passage. Because when you're young and full of yourself, you think you're actually a good person. But here's what happens to you. You get a spouse, amen, somebody. And then the real you comes out. And if that doesn't work, God gives you a bunch of kids. And then the real you starts to come out. And then God gives you a job that you hate and a, and a boss that you can't stand and a couple of coworkers that you'd like to kill. And all these things start to press on you on top of the mortgage and the bills and all the responsibilities of life. And before you know it, you're breaking your own promises and you're, you're breaking your own sinful habits. You're breaking your own laws that you think make you a good person. And, and just live a little bit of life before you look down on the old people. Can I get a good amen right there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always funny how the younger generation always thinks they're going to fix the problems that the older generation committed. Yeah, that's called being young and dumb. That's what that is. Let me tell you, young people, you're going to grow up and the generation coming under you is going to blame you for the world that you leave them. So take it easy on your parents. Frankly, your parents are looking forward to that moment. Amen. <laughs> Beginning with the oldest, one by one, they all dropped their stones because no one met that standard of having no sin except Jesus. And the scripture says this at the end of that story. Just the woman caught in sin and Jesus was alone with her. In verse 10, John chapter 8, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, sir. And notice what he says. Neither do I condemn you, grace. Go now and leave your life of sin and truth. Full of grace, full of truth. He's the God who stands between us and the law that's against us. He's the God who stands between us and God's whose wrath would justifiably send us all to hell. Job talked about this when he was in destitution. You remember Job's story? He was a righteous man, a good man, and the devil came and just robbed him of all of his stuff, killed all of his kids, destroyed all of his property. And then the second round comes around and he takes Job's health and he's sitting there in sackcloth and ashes and he's scraping with pottery the wounds that are on his body and he hates his life and he can't understand why God is allowing it all to happen. And in Job chapter 9 verse 33, Job says, if only there was someone to arbitrate between me and the Almighty to lay his hand on us both, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. Let me tell you who that arbiter is, who that mediator is. That mediator is Jesus. 
He's the one who stood between us and the wrath of God. He's the one who stands between us, a holy, an unholy people, and God, a holy and perfect and righteous God. And he takes the hand of a righteous God and the hand of an unrighteous sinner, and he brings them together through the sacrifice of his blood at Calvary 2,000 years ago. So that when God sees you, he sees Jesus all over you. And you're accepted in him. Point number four, he is the God who fills me with grace. And I'm talking about fills you with grace. That's what John experienced himself, grace. Look what he says in verse 16. From his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. Another translation says it like this, grace in place of grace. Grace in place of grace. It's like an ocean. You ever go to the ocean and you walk up to the ocean and the waves come and they start at the back and they come and they slap up onto that shore. And then the water starts to dissipate back into the ocean. You think, that's going to be it. That's going to be the end of waves. No, there's another one churning, and it's just going to come up. After that one dissipates, slap back onto the shore. And there's never a, a, an out, there's never a lack of waves in the ocean. Let me tell you something. There's never a lack of grace in God. He gives you grace for grace. The Scripture says His mercies are new every morning. The Scripture says where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. You see, you can't outsin the grace of God. Some of you run from God because you think you blew it too much. You did too many things. You've done the same stupid mistake a thousand times this weekend. It doesn't matter. God gives you more and more grace every time you need it because he's a God of amazing grace. And then grace is not just about sin. Grace is about the power of God coming into your life. I found this definition from a Bible dictionary on the word grace in the New Testament. It means the divine influence upon the heart. The divine influence. It's like God puts his hand on your heart and he strengthens it with grace. That's why Paul says, may your heart be strengthened with grace. God wants to come into your heart and strengthen you. It's why, it's why Paul the apostle could write from prison, I can do all things through Christ, because I got the grace of God giving me strength for what I'm going through today. It's why he said, I am what I am by the grace of God. Let me tell you about 2022. I don't know how your 2021 was, but here's what I know about your 2022. You don't have a clue of what's coming to you. But I can tell you that God will give you the strength through Jesus Christ for whatever you face. He gives you grace in place of grace. And point five, and finally, he's the God who draws us close to himself. He's the God who draws us close to himself. And John knew this better than anybody. He knew it better than anybody. Look what he says in verse 18. He says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus, has made him, what? Known. Now John is an interesting case study, interesting character in the New Testament. When Jesus finds John, John's a fisherman. He's not studying religion. He's not at church. He's out on the side of a seashore and he's working on his nets because he's got to make a living for him and his family. And Jesus comes by and he says, John and James, you, you too, come follow me and I'll make you into fishers of men. And those two men got into Jesus' little group there and walked and talked with Jesus. And you know, they were hotheads. James and John, they were hotheads. You know how we know? Because there's a time when Jesus goes to this village and the villagers don't want Jesus to come. They're like, no, you stay away. We don't like you. And James and John came to Jesus and said, hey, they don't like us. 
Do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? Nice guys, James and John. Jesus is like, no, we're not going to do that. That's not what I came for. Not this time. And James and John still walked with Jesus. And you know what? Somewhere along the way, John changed through being with Jesus. You see, that's how it is, my friend. It's not always overnight new person. Sometimes it's just walking. Sometimes it's just years of just staying with Jesus. I know I'm not who I should be, but I'm staying with Jesus. He's going to make me somebody different. I know I still got this issue, but I'm walking with Jesus. He's not giving up on me. I'm not letting go of him. I may not be where I need to be, but thank God I'm not where I used to be. And I know that the one who started a good work in me is going to be faithful to bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And that's what John experienced. Because you know what it says? It says Jesus one time in the, in the Last Supper, Philip said to Jesus, Jesus, just show us the Father and that'll be enough for us. Jesus says, don't you understand? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In other words, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Let me say that again for you. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. He's the God who does not condemn the sinner, but saves and forgives him. He's the God who's gentle and kind. He's the God full of compassion, moved with compassion. He's the God who came for the unrighteous, the unhealthy, the spiritually sick, that he could heal them and bring them home and close to himself. And you know what? John got the message. Because later on in that night, John chapter 13, when they were all talking about the Last Supper and they were all experiencing that moment with Jesus, it says that one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table with Jesus at Jesus' side. You know what John was doing at the Last Supper? He was laying his head on the chest of Jesus. This man who formerly wanted to kill his enemies, this smelly old fisherman, this, this everyday ordinary guy had a life encounter, a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ. And by the end of his testimony, he went from being strange to God to being near to God than anyone else. You know, it was John who followed Jesus as they arrested him and brought him to the praetorium. It was John who helped Peter get in while they were accusing Jesus at the, at the, at the court. And then at the cross, when they nailed Jesus to the cross, it was John who was at the foot of the cross standing right side by side with Mary, his mother. It was John who Jesus gave Mary to to take care of her into her old age. And that meant that Jesus had full confidence in John because John was a changed man. And it was John who would write the letters, John, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And the theme of all those letters is, let us love one another. For love is of God. And everyone who is born of God loves his neighbor. Oh, man. That's transformation that only Jesus can do in your life. But it happens when you come to Jesus because he's the God who came to you to bring you close to God.